On the 26th of May 1950, an 18-year-old bride stood outside the Church of the Good Shepherd in Beverly Hills, ready to wed her hotel air fiancé. The wedding details and all the planning had been by the movie studio MGM. The studio's own costume department had made the bride's wedding dress. 600 people were invited, along with the world's press. But this wasn't an MGM movie they were shooting. It was a legitimate wedding. Conveniently, the bride had a wedding-themed film coming out, so it was easy marketing for the studio to get involved. The young bride, still full of notions of romance and fairy tale endings, was also using the wedding and her marriage as a chance to move away from the studio who had been telling her what to do and controlling her life since she was a child. She was looking forward to starting a new chapter as she stepped into her womanhood. This marriage would be the first of seven for the young bride. But while this first marriage most certainly did not help her to achieve the freedom she was looking for, she would find it. She would find her voice and her strength, becoming one of the most iconic stars to ever grace the silver screen, and she would do it on her own terms. Welcome to Her Story, the podcast that delves into the lives of the women you have most likely heard of, but you may not know their real story. I'm your host, Megan Musgrove, and today we'll be exploring Elizabeth Taylor and her story. Elizabeth Taylor was born on February the 27th, 1932, in England, to American parents. Her father was an art gallery manager, which was how the family ended up living in London, and her mother was an aspiring actress who never quite made it and gave up on her career after her marriage. When Elizabeth was first born, her mother described her as, quote, funniest looking baby I'd ever seen. This feels at odds with what we know about Elizabeth Taylor as she grew up. It took about a month or so for the baby Elizabeth to finally open her eyes properly and begin to take in the world, which was when her parents finally saw her unique eyes, a shade of blue that was so distinct it would make the eyes appear violet. She also had a genetic disorder that meant she was born with a double row of eyelashes. Even as a small child, Elizabeth was striking to look at, something her mother Sarah was extremely proud of, stating that people would stop in the street to comment how beautiful her child was. The Taylors enjoyed a comfortable life in England until 1939, when talk of war in Europe became more than just a rumour. The American Embassy began advising US citizens to return back to America. Elizabeth's father was reluctant, but her mother pushed for a move to California, and so the family would board the SS Manhattan and head to the safety of the US. It was on this boat journey that Elizabeth would view the Shirley Temple film, The Little Princess, during an onboard screening for passengers. The viewing had such a profound effect on the young Elizabeth that as soon as the film was over, she declared to her mother that she might want to be an actress. There are many references to Sarah as being a stage mother. She was certainly very present during the early years of Elizabeth's career and could very well have been channeling her own lost dreams of being an actress. After settling back into life in America and at home in Hollywood, Sarah began making all kinds of connections to try and get her daughter noticed. In 1941, Elizabeth was actually offered a contract with Universal, but it was the young Elizabeth who declared that she wanted to sign with MGM. Not at all to be deterred, Sarah immediately arranged for an MGM producer, whose son attended the same school as Elizabeth at the time, and his wife to join the Taylors for dinner. She then managed to persuade the producer to let the family visit the MGM studio, which he eventually agreed to, and it was on this tour that they would run into the head of the studio, Louis B. Mayer himself. After seeing Elizabeth, he immediately called for her to be signed up. The family waited for the MGM contract to come through. They waited, 
and they continued to wait until Sarah tried to call L.B. Mayer himself and he refused her calls. So Elizabeth went back to Universal and began shooting a short film for them. Two weeks after finishing this film, Universal dropped her, stating, quote, The kid has nothing. Her eyes are too old. She doesn't have the face of a kid. Her chance would finally come in the end of 1942, when MGM were desperately scrambling to replace a young actress in the film Lassie Come Home. It was found the original actress was a head taller than the male lead, a young Roddy McDowell, which they would not permit, so they were looking for a young girl with an English accent. The 10-year-old Elizabeth got the part and MGM would officially sign her to a seven-year contract this time. She followed this up with a small part in 1943's Jane Eyre, where she was only on screen for a few minutes, but did make a lasting impact. But it would be 1944's National Velvet that would make her a star. The film was planned to be a big release by MGM, who'd been working on it for two years, and Elizabeth and her mother wanted Elizabeth to get the part. The film is based on a beloved children's novel of the same name, where a young girl named Velvet and her horse journey to compete in the Grand National. For the role, the studio needed a teenage girl with an English accent and knew how to ride a horse. Elizabeth fit the criteria and managed to persuade the studio to cast her. The film was a huge success, and following the release of National Velvet, Elizabeth would no longer experience a normal life. She became a key cog in the MGM factory that was famous for churning out stars. While she achieved big success with her career as a child, the transition into a film star as an adult was not guaranteed. We see the same thing today. Child actors get typecast and can never break from that mould, or the film industry doesn't know what to do with them and once they age out of being a child actor, that's kind of the end of their career. MGM could be quite ruthless if they no longer had use for an actor who could not make that progression. Elizabeth's looks certainly helped. There was a look to her as a child that always appeared older than she was. Plus she was incredibly beautiful. But she was able to act, and more crucially, she was given the right vehicle to make the change in her career. In 1949, MGM would loan Elizabeth out to Paramount Studios to star in the film A Place in the Sun. Her co-star would be Montgomery Clift. Clift was not the kind of actor Elizabeth had been used to working with. He was part of the method acting crowd that was coming through, students of the famed actor studio taking their craft seriously. The studio actually arranged for Clift and Elizabeth to have a well-publicised date before they began filming. Studios tended to send their stars out on fake dates to drum up interest. At first, he was annoyed with the fact he was being set up with this young starlet, but realised quickly that his initial impression of Elizabeth had been wrong. She was brasher than he expected, openly swearing, much to his amusement, and they quickly formed a bond. As a term of endearment, he would refer to her as Bessie May, because everyone in the world called her Elizabeth, only he would call her Bessie Mae. She in turn would call him Monty. Their work together on A Place in the Sun would teach Elizabeth about how to take acting seriously. She was so taken by what Clift was able to achieve through his acting and she strove to work harder to keep up with him. It is also possible that Clift was the love of Elizabeth's life, despite there not being a romantic relationship between the two. Clift was either homosexual or bisexual, depending on what source you take the information from. Though Elizabeth herself would know in later years, after Cliff's death, that 
that he lived as a gay man. The two had an incredible connection and they would enjoy a lifelong friendship. Speaking to Barbara Walters when talking about her friendship with Clift, she would say, we really loved each other in the fullest complete sense of the word. One of the key elements associated with Elizabeth Taylor is her marriages. It's probably the main thing people know her for. While I'm slightly loath to have to delve into women's relationships with men as past their persona, with Elizabeth Taylor, it feels slightly different. Her marriages are intrinsically linked with the main components of her story, so they do have to be mentioned quite a bit as it's impossible to discuss her life without talking about her marriages and how they influence each chapter of her story. Elizabeth's first husband was heir to the hotel fortune for the Hilton Hotel Group, Conrad Nicky Hilton. Their marriage took place in 1950. This was the wedding that MGM hijacked, making it more of a PR campaign to publicise Taylor's upcoming film Father of the Bride, which was the next part of their plan to progress Elizabeth from a child star to an adult movie star. They even arranged for the actors who had played her parents over the years in various films to be seated in the church along with Elizabeth's own parents. After a whirlwind courtship and a wedding of the year to Hilton, Elizabeth's matrimonial bliss burst on her honeymoon when her new husband decided to show his true self. At 23, he was already dealing with a drinking problem along with a short temper. The marriage would only last a few months, with Elizabeth deciding very quickly she was not going to put herself in that kind of position any longer. Her second marriage was to a man who was the antithesis of Nicky Hilton. Michael Wilding was a British actor, 20 years older than Elizabeth, and they met on the set of the film Ivanhoe in 1951. To Elizabeth, he was a stable man who could give her the fairy tale she wanted. For a while, he did. At least that was how things looked on the surface. Despite being barely 20, Taylor was already a huge star in Hollywood. The progression from child star had been an absolute triumph. Wilding was revered in England, but he had to make himself a name in America. In renegotiations to her contract with MGM, Elizabeth would stipulate they had to cast her husband in certain projects too. She tried to help his career, but it just never took off. She became the breadwinner to the family and he the house husband to their two children, something that did not sit well with him. In 1956, when shooting the film Giant in the middle of the desert with James Dean and a man who would become a lifelong friend, Rock Hudson, Elizabeth would learn that Wilding had been entertaining female strippers in the home she bought for them. She was stuck in long days shooting the film, not long after having given birth to her second son, all to pay the bills because Wilding was not doing his share. It was then that she knew that her marriage had come to an end. Her third husband, Mike Todd, was possibly the best fit for Elizabeth. He was incredibly self-assured, so much so that he didn't have his ego knocked by being married to one of the most famous actresses in the world. Yet she supported it and wanted her star to rise. He was also self-assured enough to argue with her, something she reveled in. He was her equal. He was also the man who would ignite her love of fine and expensive jewellery, another element synonymous with the name Elizabeth Taylor. But their marriage would only last a year. In 1958, he would die in a plane crash. Elizabeth was devastated. Friends were worried she might never recover, and in those first few weeks, they took turns to watch her in case she did something drastic in her grief. It would be fair to say that had his life not been tragically cut short, Mike Todd may have been Elizabeth's final husband in a lasting marriage. 
It was during the death of Mike Todd that Elizabeth was filming one of her most famous roles. She was in the middle of filming Cat on a Hot Tin Roof with Paul Newman. At the news of Todd's death, Elizabeth was devastated. She was not coping well, but the studio pulled rank and forced her to get back to shooting the film. She resented this, another nail in the coffin of her relationship with MGM, but she channeled the grief she was feeling into the role of Maggie the Cat, giving an absolutely electrifying performance. She would be nominated for an Oscar for the role, but lost out likely to do with the scandal she created following Mike Todd's death. Her wedding to Mike Todd had been a small affair. The only witnesses had been Todd's best friend Eddie Fisher and Fisher's wife Debbie Reynolds, who had grown up with Elizabeth on the MGM studio lot. Eddie Fisher was devastated by the loss of Mike Todd, almost as much as Elizabeth was, and in their mutual grief they found solace in one another. When the news of the affair got out, the public really turned against Elizabeth. Debbie Reynolds was essentially America's sweetheart, and people were outraged on her behalf, painting Elizabeth as a callous, seductive homewrecker. What the public didn't know was that their picturesque golden couple of Reynolds and Fisher was not all it appeared to be. There were suggestions that it had been a studio-arranged marriage more than a traditional love match. Of course, that doesn't get Elizabeth off the hook. While I completely understand Elizabeth entering those first two marriages that end up being wrong for her, and her walking away from them being completely reasonable, I personally feel like Eddie Fisher was a bad choice, likely born out of grief, making him a regrettable rebound. Because the two would marry, with Eddie Fisher becoming Elizabeth's fourth husband in 1959. The marriage did little to legitimise their relationship in the eyes of the public, though her film career did not seem to suffer. She still had several high-profile film roles with good audience attendance during this time. This was also the time that she was offered the role of Cleopatra for 20th Century Fox. As Elizabeth herself would describe it, when the call came through from the producer, she thought the role offer was a joke and she replied, sure, tell him I'll do it for a million dollars. Whether the agreement was made as easily as this may just be Hollywood folklore, but as Cleopatra, Elizabeth would become the first actress to make $1 million in a single film role. But first, she owed one more film to MGM as part of her contract, and they chose the vehicle Butterfield 8. Much as they had with Elizabeth's first wedding coinciding with the release of the film Father of the Bride, the studio was attempting to capitalise on the interest in Taylor's personal life and cast her in the role of a high-class cool girl. Elizabeth did not want to take the role, but she didn't have much choice. She resented the role throughout the duration of the shoot, but a small role was made available for Eddie Fisher. This was when the cracks in their rush marriage began to show. Elizabeth continually tried to bait the mild-mannered Fisher, as if trying to get him to show some masculine power that she admired in a man, the way she had with Mike Todd. After getting through the shoot for Butterfield 8, Elizabeth was finally able to put her time with MGM behind her, looking ahead to the filming of Cleopatra, which was due to take place in Pinewood Studios just outside of London. But in November 1960, as the film was still in very early stages of shooting, Elizabeth became ill, so ill, in fact, that she ended up in hospital with spinal meningitis. Filming was placed on hold while she recuperated over the next few months, already making the film look to be a financial disaster. In May 1961, just as she was preparing herself to get back to set for filming, 
Elizabeth collapsed, unable to breathe. An emergency tracheotomy was performed, but it was not looking good for her. News outlets began reporting how dire the situation was, with some even reporting that she'd already died. But she pulled through, amassing a huge amount of sympathy from the public. They instantly forgot they had been angry with her for breaking up a marriage. All it took to get back in the goodwill of the public was the near-death experience. She would win the Oscar that year for her performance in Butterfield 8. Elizabeth was grateful and humble in her acceptance speech, though not naive enough to believe the award was completely for her acting role. She knew in part that it was a sympathy award. As Shirley MacLaine, also nominated that year, would joke, I lost to a tracheotomy. In September 1961, after a long road to get there, principal photography began on Cleopatra, now shooting in the new location of Rome. The duration of the shoot would have an incredible impact on Elizabeth's life, including the start of her relationship with husband number five and six, Richard Burton. I will preface this by saying there's not going to be a huge amount mentioned about the Taylor Burton relationship here. There's just simply too much to cover, so I'm just going to gloss over the key highlights and putting together a separate episode to follow this one up, just covering their relationship, so we can dive a little bit deeper into the jewellery, the films, and the fights of their whole relationship. Cleopatra would be a huge success at the box office, but that didn't translate into financial success. Because of how over-budget the film ended up being, there were simply just not enough cinemas available to put on enough showings to allow the film to make its money back. It would take three years for the film to eventually break even, The film almost bankrupted Fox. As noted in the Marilyn episode, with all the financial issues experienced by the studio, they shut down all but two productions, putting their financial eggs in the Marilyn Monroe and Elizabeth Taylor basket. The years following Cleopatra were important for Elizabeth. Her career continued to move to new heights, aided by some excellent collaborations with Richard Burton. This is also the time many iconic associations we have with Elizabeth Taylor materialise, the lavish spending and famous jewels. There's so much to dive into that we're just going to cover this in a separate episode. The legendary Taylor Burton marriage would end in 1976. She would meet politician John Warner not long after. It was as if she was drawn to the doll Warner because he was the opposite of Burton and the glamour of the Hollywood lifestyle that she wanted to take a break from. She was tempted by the quiet life in Virginia he offered. Elizabeth would say when asked about whether the quiet life was for her, I'm exhausted, I'm absolutely sick of being Elizabeth Taylor, I'm sick of being the main attraction in a three-ring circus, is that so wrong? Warner's political career gained a boost from having the glamorous Elizabeth Taylor as his wife. She was there by his side as he ran for senator in 1977. The marriage would last six years, but eventually Elizabeth realised the life as an adoring politician's wife was not for her. The quiet life with nothing but time on her hands was not as idyllic as she imagined, and she soon became bored. It was also during this time she experienced what may have been her first encounter with low self-esteem. During her marriage to Warner, she gained weight. This is not unheard of for a woman of her age to experience. It's completely natural, but the Hollywood press were not so forgiving. It can't have been an easy period for her. The once revered, glamorous star of the golden age of Hollywood, times had now changed. Moviegoers knew her as the woman their parents had watched in films. 
and now the press were lampooning her for her looks. After her marriage to Warner had all but officially ended, Elizabeth moved on to some TV work, working alongside other stars of her day who had not been able to maintain their star status in films. She also dabbled in theatre work, including some stage work with Richard Burton, but things were not as they had once been for her. She was known to spend time drinking and taking pills as she watched her old films, she was pining for the past. In 1983, her friends and family felt they needed to step in. Her drinking and pill taking had become too much and she experienced health issues as a result. It was after one hospitalisation that Elizabeth woke up to find her family around her and they began to read the reasons why they were worried for her. She finally realised what she was doing to herself and to her family. In December 1983, she would check into the Bessie Ford Centre. What's more, she didn't try to hide it. She was public about what she was doing, something celebrities had never done before. It was a long path to recover for Elizabeth, but she put the work in, being treated the same as everybody else there. When she was released from the centre in 1984, she had a renewed sense of life and vigour, something that would stand her in good stead as she embarked on an unforeseen chapter in her long story. Despite the incredible life Elizabeth Taylor experienced, including two Oscar wins, her philanthropic work falls under the section named as The Glory Years in J. Randy Tabarelli's biography. In 1985, when Elizabeth was approached to help with a fundraiser for the AIDS Project of Los Angeles, APLA, she would soon learn that many celebrities were reluctant to be involved with fundraising efforts for HIV or AIDS due to the stigma, something that infuriated her. The attitude went completely against everything she stood for. Despite the homophobia of the time and many years before, there were plenty of gay men working in Hollywood, and it was some of these men that Elizabeth Taylor would form her closest friendships with. Her natural maternal desire to nurture allowed closeted actors of the time to find safe space with her. In July 1985, it would be the announcement of one close friend, Rock Hudson, her co-star in Giant way back in 1956, and his diagnosis as the first celebrity with AIDS that would create a cultural shift into how people viewed the disease. The disease was suddenly given a face, and it was that of a beloved Hollywood icon. This disclosure of his illness would also inadvertently out him and reveal much of his secret life that he had made to live. Spurred on with a desire to help, in 1985 Elizabeth announced the fundraising event, the Commitment to Life Dinner. The problem was, no one wanted to attend. She was personally calling people to invite them, but they were declining, stating that they didn't want to be involved or would support a cancer charity instead. It would be the revelation of Rock Hudson that would be the catalyst for people eventually wanting to attend the dinner, the Hollywood crowd now rallying around one of its own. The fundraising dinner went ahead in LA on September the 19th, 1985. It took place only two days after President Reagan first uttered the words AIDS in public, and he had sent a telegram to the fundraiser acknowledging that it was a critical issue. This was his first instance of him making a public statement on the matter. The dinner would be a success, raising over a million dollars for APLA. In her book, Accidental Feminist, M.G. Lord breaks down the government funding on AIDS research. In 1981-1982, it only received $1 million in funding, whilst, in contrast, Legionnaire's disease was receiving $9 million, emphasising how important the private fundraising effort was. It raised more in one night than was allocated by the government official funding in the first year of the epidemic. 
It would only be two weeks after this fundraiser, on October the 2nd, that Rock Hudson would lose his battle and sadly pass away. His death sparked a new fire in Elizabeth. She was determined to raise the necessary funds for research into the disease. She threw herself into the work co-founding the Foundation for AIDS Research, AMFAR, in 1985, a posthumous gift of $250,000 from Rock as she helped fund this. She would then go on to found the Elizabeth Taylor AIDS Foundation, a charity still in effect today. Last year, it celebrated its 30th anniversary with a gala fundraiser. One of the fundraisers and sponsors of the event was Bulgari. It was an Elizabeth Taylor event after all. Along with private fundraising, she would regularly lobby congressional committees for more funding into research. In front of a subcommittee in 1986, she would say what would become her motto, I will not be ignored and I will not go away. So help me, please. During the 1980s, Elizabeth would take on a few acting roles here and there, but to this generation, she was not the Hollywood star she had been to the generation before. She would be known as an activist and a philanthropist, as well as quite a savvy businesswoman, creating a perfume empire in 1987. Despite an unparalleled career full of drama, husbands and jewellery, it would be her work with AIDS awareness that would be the great passion in her life. Without her dedication and tenacity, it is fair to say that attention to the disease by the mainstream media and the general public would not have occurred when it did. She would remain active in fundraising and awareness events around the world, her efforts being recognised by Queen Elizabeth in the year 2000, where Elizabeth Taylor became Dame Elizabeth Taylor for her humanitarian efforts. She would also have one more marriage in the final chapters of her life. Whilst in rehab in 1988, following a relapse of painkillers, Elizabeth would meet Larry Fortensky, a manual labour, and he would become her seventh husband from eight marriages. The marriage in 1991 was officiated by Michael Jackson, with whom Elizabeth had formed a friendship with due to their bonding over how tough it was to be working as a famous child star from such a young age. This last marriage lasted until 1996. There was a slight bitter taste surrounding the divorce proceedings when Fortensky sued for $5 million and records of Elizabeth's finances began to become public. It was expected that she was a rich woman, but with all her assets, including the jewellery, built up from the years and the money her perfume business was making, her net worth was estimated to be around $608 million. In the end, they settled the divorce figure at $1 million and Elizabeth remained on friendly terms with Fortensky. Each marriage is a tale in itself, reflecting of where Elizabeth happened to be in her life at the time and each marriage in its own way would set Elizabeth on the path she was destined to follow. But it was not the marriages that would cement her place in history. Only she herself could ensure that she created a legacy that would mean she was remembered as a Hollywood icon. Elizabeth died in 2011, at age 79, from heart failure, spending the time after her final divorce in an almost well-earned retirement, also having to deal with numerous health conditions. Known for perpetually being late throughout her entire life, as part of the arrangements for the ceremony, she'd arranged to be 15 minutes late, ensuring she was late for even her own funeral. Thank you for listening to this episode of Her Story. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please rate and review wherever you get your podcast from, share on social media, or just tell a friend. The podcast is written and narrated by me. It's produced by John Ward. And make sure you subscribe so you don't miss an episode. You can also follow the podcast on Instagram at underscore herstorypodcast underscore. I will link to it in the show notes. 
on the Instagram, you'll find hints for future episodes. And I'd also love for you to get in touch if you have any suggestions for anyone that you want to hear in a future episode. And if I haven't already got them scheduled in to appear, I'd love to look at including them. Thanks. If you're interested in learning more about Elizabeth Taylor, there's a list of reading materials in the show notes, along with some film recommendations, if you fancy an evening in with some classic cinema. The podcast will be back next week with a follow-up episode for Elizabeth Taylor, covering her relationship with Richard Burton and just delving into that period a little bit deeper. See you next week.